0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Acts 18.23 through 19.20. It's really the beginning of what we call the third missionary journey. Let's set that into context. In the previous episode, Luke wrapped up the second missionary journey by saying, when he, Paul, had landed in Caesarea, he went up to the church in Jerusalem and went then down to Antioch. And so Luke ends the second journey simply by summarizing how Paul sailed all the way to the east, visited the church in Jerusalem, and then went down to what we might call his sending church in Antioch of Syria. And he's going to spend some time there. We don't know how long that gap is between the end of the second journey and the beginning of the third journey, but the date is likely sometime in late 53, Uh, to early 54, somewhere in that time period, based on what we know about the chronology of Paul's life, that's where I would put the date. And Paul and his team, they've made disciples and established churches in Cyprus and Galatia. They did that on the first journey. They've made disciples and established churches in Macedonia and Greece. They did that on the second journey. And Paul, on his return trip from the second journey, had a short visit at Ephesus, And uh, that showed incredible interest in the gospel there. And so he leaves because he's heading uh, back to visit the church in Jerusalem and check in with Antioch. But he leaves Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. um, And they're going to really kind of like lay some groundwork and going to help this kind of new group of disciples there in Ephesus. And Paul's hoping to return, as he said, should the Lord will it. Well, after spending some time in Jerusalem and Antioch, then Paul leaves Antioch and is going to travel all the way across the length of what is modern day Turkey on his way to Ephesus. It's about an 800 mile trip. And if you're just walking straight through, you're looking at oh, two and a half months or so. Um, but for Paul, it likely took longer than that, factoring in that he would stop and spend some time with the churches in each town where he planted churches. And so we're looking at a three-month or so trip from Antioch of Syria all the way across to Ephesus. So Luke begins this really snap first snapshot of the third missionary journey by giving us a a small snapshot of something that happens at Ephesus while Paul is traveling across country to get there. And so we pick up the story in Acts chapter 18, verse 23, and it says this, after spending some time there, that is in Antioch, he traveled to Jerusalem, then down to Antioch. And after spending some time there in Antioch, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so Paul spent some time in Antioch. He then heads north and then east around the corner um, through his hometown of Tarsus and then on into Galatia and Phrygia, and he's visiting the disciples in the cities he visited on the first missionary journey, places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. As he's moving from east to west, he would visit those cities and spend some time with the disciples in each of those places. And Luke describes his goal, his work, as strengthening the disciples, uh, building them up, answering questions, uh, helping them understand the gospel and Jesus more fully. And so he's traveling through and visiting the churches that he started on his first missionary journey. Now, while that's happening, Luke gives us a short snapshot of something that happens at Ephesus. Here it is, verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, and an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was proficient in the scriptures. And so, this snapshot's going to focus on something that happens with this man named Apollos. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know Apollos from some of the things said about him in 1 Corinthians. And we'll see here shortly that he's actually going to head down to Corinth at the end of this little scene. But here's where we're introduced to him. So what do we know about Apollos? Well, he's an Alexandrian by birth. That is, he's from the city of Alexandria, In northern Egypt, Alexandria was an incredibly prominent city, famous for its world-renowned library. So, it was an important center of learning. It had a large population of Jews. Um, Some estimates put it at about 100,000 Jews. So, here's Apollos. He's an Alexandrian by by birth, and he's a Jew from Alexandria, and he's described as an eloquent man, and that word translated eloquent, and that only captures part of it. The idea is learned. He's a learned man, and he's skilled in public speaking and in rhetoric, and so he's a learned and skilled man in rhetoric, and he came to Ephesus, And he's proficient in the scriptures. And so he's also knowledgeable of the scriptures. He knows the scriptures. And yet his understanding of Jesus, as we'll see, is a little bit deficient. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he had been taught the way of Jesus. And being fervent in spirit, he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John, and he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. So, Apollos comes to Ephesus, he knows about Jesus, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, he's fervent in spirit, and that either means he's fervent in his own spirit, right? He's energetic and enthusiastic in his own spirit, or fervent in the spirit, and it's not clear which one, but either way, the point is, is that he is a fervent a speaker for Jesus, a firm, fervent teacher of the scriptures. And notice he was accurately speaking and teaching things about Jesus. So he, some of the things he says about Jesus, he's accurate in that. He's teaching about Jesus and he's accurate with one deficiency, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And so his deficiency is, uh, he seems to have in some regard uh, some sort of deficient understanding of Christian baptism, maybe to the point of he's not even totally familiar with w- with what happened post Pentecost, right? Like he's he knows about Jesus, maybe he knows about Jesus' ministry, he knows who Jesus is, but maybe he doesn't fully understand. Uh, what happened when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and all that. We're not sure the exact deficiency, but the way it's described here is he's acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began speaking boldly in the synagogue. Now, remember Paul's friends and co-workers from Corinth that he's left in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, they're there in Ephesus. And so it says this, when Priscilla... And Aquila heard him. First, just a little side note. Notice Priscilla's name comes first, which uh, perhaps speaks of her maybe having a little bit more social prominence than Aquila, at least in this context. And so when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they realized he's deficient, that there's something uh, missing, incomplete in his understanding about Jesus, his understanding about uh, the history of what has happened post-Pentecost, something deficient about his understanding of baptism. So they heard him and they realize there's a deficiency. And so it says this: they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to him. And so Priscilla and Aquila realize: okay, he he's missing something. His teaching is accurate up to a point, but it's incomplete. So they actually pull him aside. Notice that privately. Uh, because he's sincere, he's fervent, right? He's accurate in what he understands, but his understanding is incomplete. So they take him aside privately and they give him a more complete understanding of Jesus and baptism and the spirit and all that sort of stuff um, and help them understand the way of Jesus much more fully and completely. So now they have Apollos up to speed, and Luke tells us then that he wants to continue his traveling itinerant ministry by going across the Aegean to Achaia, to Greece. And so verse 27, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him. In other words, he's got the support of the Christians there in Ephesus and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And so they sent letters of recommendation. A very common practice in the ancient world, particularly for itinerant teachers like this. And so they wrote letters of recommendation to the brothers and sisters in Achaia, that would be primarily in Corinth, Um, recommending that they welcome Apollos to him and giving him a good introduction. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. In other words, he was incredibly skilled at taking the Old Testament scriptures and helping people realize that indeed Jesus is the Messiah from the scriptures. And so... That strengthened the churches and the disciples and the believers there in Achaia. Now, that little snapshot seems to be the setup for what happens next when Paul arrives in Ephesus. So Luke continues on at the beginning of chapter 19 and says this. Now, it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, so he travels from Ephesus to Achaia, and Luke lets us know primarily we're talking about the city of Corinth. And the reality is, as Apollos has mentioned in the Corinthian letters because of his connection there. And so when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 and even 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we realize that uh, Apollos spent a good amount of time in the city of Corinth, so much so that he actually became one of the people that created some of the divisions in the church, unintentionally, not by his doing, but some of the people in Corinth rallied around various camps, right? Like some were of Apollos, some were of Peter, some were of Paul, saying that was who their primary teacher was. And so Apollos was a powerful teacher, spent some time there. And so he's mentioned in the Corinthian letters. At some point, Apollos apparently came back to Ephesus Uh, Because in 1 Corinthians 16.12, Paul mentions that he wanted to send Apollos back to, or encouraged Apollos to go back to Corinth, but Apollos wasn't ready to do that just yet. And so, he travels from Ephesus to Corinth, at some point back to Ephesus. But here, while he's in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country. So, he's passing through the Middle of what is now modern day Turkey, right through that whole upper lands, visiting the disciples, strengthening them. And then he eventually came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And so let's pause right there. And let's just talk a little bit about the city of Ephesus we're focused here on the city of Ephesus on the third journey because it's really what going to be like the heart of Paul's ministry and Luke's recounting of Paul's ministry on the third journey. And the reason for that is because Ephesus was such a massive and prominent and important city. It was perhaps the fourth largest city in the Roman empire of the time. Uh, It was A massive commercial center. It dominated Asia Minor and, in fact, what is now modern day Turkey. In fact, all the Roman mile markers in the region were measured from the city of Ephesus. And so you're talking about how many miles you are from Ephesus. It was the major harbor on the coast. And so it's a massive city, huge city. And in fact, there's been lots of archaeological work that's been done there. You could get on Google and just Google ancient Ephesus. You could find all sorts of pictures of the ruins of the city and some of the work that's been done as they're restoring some of the wealthy people's houses up on the slopes and some of that. You can see pictures of the theater that will factor into Paul's experience in the city of Ephesus. Uh, You can see some of the major roads. You even see the facade of the library that was built after Paul's time, but was really prominent there and the, the gate to the marketplace. And so here is a wealthy, influential, and important city, and Paul arrives here, and we know from what's been described with Apollos' work there, with Aquila and Priscilla there, and from the end of the second journey, when Paul stopped by there briefly, that there was a lot of eagerness to hear about Jesus among the Jews and some of the people there in the city of Ephesus. So Paul arrives in Ephesus, it says in nineteen one, and he found some disciples, or maybe better, what appeared to be disciples. As we read the, this next little account, we realize they looked like disciples. Paul thought they were disciples, but these disciples had a similar problem to the problem that Apollos had. Look what happens. Verse 2, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, as Paul interacted with these quote unquote disciples, all of a sudden he began to realize, hmm, something doesn't seem quite right here. There seems to be some deficiency here. And so he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, on the contrary, we have not even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. Now, we we need to clarify that. That translation, I think, doesn't uh, always help us. These disciples, as best as we can tell, have some sort of Jewish heritage. We're going to learn that they're actually disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit Um, And so as uh, most likely they're at least uh, disciples of John the Baptist, probably Jews, and thus they would have at least knowledge of that the Holy Spirit had been promised, right? And so when it says we haven't even heard if there is a Holy Spirit, literally what that says is we have not heard that the Holy Spirit is, that is, is poured out, has come, That's the idea. And so, in other words, they're operating at a pre-Pentecost understanding of Jesus, John the Baptist, and God's work of salvation. Really, all they know is John the Baptist and perhaps some stuff about Jesus, uh, but they don't know what's happened since the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That's the problem. Uh, And so, verse 3, he said to them, well, then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. This is an important question. The reason Paul asked this question is because of the connection in uh, the book of Acts with repentance, and faith, and baptism, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this all throughout the book of Acts, that those things are all linked together. And you look back, clear back to the beginning in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit is first poured out, and um, you get the connection of these very things, belief, and faith, and repentance, baptism, the Holy Spirit, all these things are connected. And so, he's like, wait a second then, tell me about your baptism." If you don't know that the Holy Spirit has been poured out, then what were you baptized into? Uh, and they said John's baptism. In other words, they only have experienced uh, John the Baptist's baptism way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Um, all the way back at this point, we're looking at almost 25 years earlier. So, Paul takes this opportunity to explain things more fully to them. Verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. And so this is the way Luke summarizes Paul's explanation that John was a forerunner. He was looking forward to Jesus, and he wasn't the end of the story. He was the one pointing to Jesus, who's the climax, the end of the story. And people are supposed to believe in him. Well, when they heard this, presumably, they put their faith in Jesus, and thus, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And so, these uh, disciples here who had this pre-Pentecost understanding and who only understood about John and John's baptism, put their faith in Jesus, were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And now they're not baptized into John's baptism. They're actually baptized into Christ. And Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came on them and they were speaking with, with tongues and prophesying. So now after their baptism, Paul lays his hands on them, prays for them, and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them with visible manifestation. Notice that, speaking in foreign languages, languages they do not know, speaking in tongues. We saw that in Acts 2 at the day of Pentecost. We saw that in Acts 10 and 11 with the first Gentiles coming in, Cornelius and his family, and we see that here in prophesying. And So, two observations. One is, notice that this is explicitly connected with Paul laying his hands on them. We've seen that as well in the book of Acts, where, for example, Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritan believers, when Peter and John laid their hands on them, then the Spirit came on them in some sort of visible way. And people could see that the Spirit was poured out through the laying on of the apostles' hands. We see that here with Paul. And so, we don't understand all that's going on with that, uh, but it seems like there's some connection between Paul or Peter and John in the case of Acts 8 and laying on the hands and this pouring out of the spirit and then pouring it out with some sort of physical, man- visible manifestations. Um, like speaking in foreign languages that you haven't learned or prophesying in some way. And so now the Spirit comes in a very visible way to help them realize that indeed we are living in the era of the Spirit, in the messianic times when the Spirit has been poured out, just as the Old Testament prophesied, and just as John the Baptist said would happen when the Messiah came. And so now they, they see and they experience and they know and those around them see and experience and realize, okay, they were deficient, but now they're not. And it comes with visible manifestation. And Luke tells us there are about 12 men in all. So there are about 12 disciples here of John the Baptist who now have a full, complete understanding and they know the rest of the story. They're baptized into Christ and they have received the Spirit. Now, in the rest of this little snapshot from nineteen eight through 1920, Luke is first going to give a general summary of the effectiveness of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And then he's going to give two specific snapshots that really illustrate the power of Paul's ministry there in this city. So look what happens verse 8, and Paul entered the synagogue and continued speaking boldly for 3 months having discussions and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So Paul as is typical begins his ministry in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearers, and he this, in this case, it doesn't just go on for a couple of weeks. It goes on for three months as he's meeting with them on the Sabbaths. And he's meeting during the week, perhaps, while they're studying scriptures. And he's exploring the scriptures. And Luke summarizes uh, his teaching, his message about Um, the kingdom of God. And so he's helping them see that indeed the Messiah has come. God's kingdom now is coming in and through Jesus, the Messiah. And he's persuading them of that. And he's having a very effective ministry. But verse nine, when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them, and took the disciples away with him and had discussions daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so uh, he speaks in the synagogue for three months. There are there's a component of people that don't believe. And in, in fact, Luke says in verse nine, they're, they're being hardened and disobedient and speaking evil of the way. And so the hostility is ramping up. And so Paul decides, all right, we've done the work we can do here. We've made the disciples we can here. And so he withdraws from the synagogue and he took the, the believers with him and he began spending his time, it says, in the school of Tyrannus which, as best as we can understand it, appears to have been a a public auditorium or a lecture hall in the city of Ephesus, where Paul then, maybe in the afternoon hours when it wasn't being used because it was hot or who knows, uh, in, in some sense, Paul either rented this or was given access to this public lecture hall, and he could have debates and discussions and Bible studies in the school of Tyrannus, and notice How long this took place? Verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so Paul's ministry in Ephesus, even though it's described generally here, is is long-term and effective. In fact, what we see in Paul's own words, he says uh, that the Lord has opened a wide door for effective ministry for me. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. And that's what we see here in the, the book of Acts is this is a wide door of effective ministry for Paul. And so for two years, um, he's utilizing the lecture hall of Tyrannus and he's meeting and he's teaching and he's discussing and debating and building up the disciples. And the result of that is all who lived in Asia heard the word. And so the province around Ephesus, all the cities around Ephesus now are there's disciples in those various cities. That's that's how effective Paul's ministry in Ephesus was. Now, how did that happen? Well we, we have to kind of read between the lines a little bit in Paul's letters and some of that. For example, Colossae. Colossae was one of the cities of Asia, about 90 to 100 miles east of Ephesus. And Paul didn't ever start the church there, but he writes a letter to... Uh, Colossae, the church there, the letter of Colossians, and he tells us in Colossians chapter 1-7 that Epaphras, who's one of their members, is the one who planted the church there and in a city north of there through his ministry. Well, how do we see that happening? Well, our guess would be, as we read between the lines, is that Epaphras came to faith Under Paul's ministry in Ephesus somehow, maybe he traveled there, maybe he heard about it, we don't know for sure. Then he returned to his hometown of Colossae, and he started the church there. And it seems like that's what's going on. So much so that when Paul writes to the Corinthians from Ephesus, he can refer to in 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the churches of Asia. In other words, there are churches now all throughout the the towns and the cities of Asia. And so it seems like if a paphras is an example that various people were being sent from Ephesus out to some of the other cities and towns and they're planting the churches there in those other cities. And and thus all Asia heard the word. Now, before we leave that general description, just a couple little notes that are just sort of a side notes, but are important. We've already mentioned 1 Corinthians. And that's because during these two and a half years or so that Paul is teaching and speaking in Ephesus, he has tons of contact with the church at Corinth. And so he writes the, the letter of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus during this time period. Uh, we know from piecing together the chronology and Paul's travels from both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Paul makes a visit from Ephesus to Corinth. It doesn't go well, uh, and there's tension and there's conflict, and Paul returns back to Ephesus, and he writes a letter to the Corinthians that's not in our Bible that is sort of a kind of a harsh rebuking letter, it seems like, Um, and he has then plans to sort of uh, deal with the Corinthians and sending some of his co-workers there. And then eventually, after he leaves Ephesus, he's going to write 2 Corinthians. And so there's all sorts of contact with the church at Corinth. It's really hard to piece together all that chronology. Uh, but if you are a member of the Study Hub, I have a document there that kind of, as best as I can piece it together from all of Paul's uh, writings and what's said in Acts, what's said in First and 2 Corinthians— we can piece together his chronology and all his interactions with the church at Corinth during this time period. Just know there's a ton of that. And he's he's dealing with some of the the chaos that has erupted at the Church of Corinth during this time that he's having an effective ministry in Ephesus as well. Now, after that general description of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Luke gives us two snapshots that illustrate the power of Paul's ministry there and the miraculous power of it. So the first snapshot is uh, just miracles and exorcisms and then kind of almost a humorous story that happens as a result. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So miracles that Luke feels like these are not just normal miracles. These are extraordinary miracles so much so that here's what happens. So that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick. In other words, people would take, you know, sweat rags or uh, maybe an apron that he had used in a leather shop or a piece of Paul's clothing or some, something like that were carried from him to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. And so uh, there, were, there were miracles that were happening just through Paul's clothing. Um, which is pretty remarkable. It reminds us of that moment in Jesus' ministry when the woman just wanted to reach out and touch the hem of his garment because she felt like if she could just do that, she would be healed. And so she reached out and did, and she indeed was healed. It's a similar sort of thing here where we have uh, articles of clothing being taken from Paul and, and diseases leaving people, evil spirits being cast out of people. Um, and this is apropos, really, in the ancient world, magic, evil spirits, all of that was like all the major cities you would find that sort of stuff. But Ephesus was like a stronghold for ancient sorcery, ancient magical practices. It was a Asia Minor under the influence of Ephesus was a stronghold for that. And so it seems like in view of that, God is endowing Paul And even articles of clothing for Paul with extraordinary power as a way to point towards who Paul is and the Jesus that he is preaching. So here's what happens. Here's the funny part almost of what happens. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so we get some itinerant Jewish exorcists. They travel from place to place, and they've seen the power of the name of Jesus through Paul's ministry, and so they want to use the name of Jesus like a magical name. This is the way magic worked in the ancient world, is that the goal was to have a formula, have an incantation, be able to name the name of some spiritual power, and if you knew the name, that gave you control over them so that you could achieve some sort of effect. That's why when Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, which goes to Ephesus and in the churches in the surrounding area around Ephesus, he talks about Jesus' name being above every, other name. It's why he talks about the spiritual powers and spiritual warfare end, because this region was so steeped in that. And the way you would do that was you would have magical names. And so these Jewish exorcists who have no faith in Jesus are simply trying to use the name of Jesus like any other magical name. And so they're going around saying, I order you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Like it's, they're like we don't even know this Jesus. it's the Jesus Paul preaches. He's having great power. That, so we're trying to use this name too. That's the idea. Well, here's what happened. Um, now there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest doing this and so we get a specific episode of these seven sons of some sort of Jewish high priest. Maybe he was from like the high priestly family. We're not totally sure who this guy is, but he's got seven sons. They're trying to use the name of Jesus as a magical name to cast out demons, verse 15. But the evil spirit responded and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know of Paul, but who are you? Like uh, the spirit is like, no, this doesn't work this way with the name of Jesus. And so I know Jesus, I know Paul, I don't know who you are and the man in whom uh, was the evil spirit pounced on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And so this, this demon-possessed man, um, with the power of the demon within him, attacked and wounded these seven sons of Sceva. They ended, and ripped their clothes off. They ended up fleeing out of the house naked and wounded. That's why I find that so humorous. Now, in the ancient world, they would not have found this humorous. Um, The reason they wouldn't have found this humorous is because they lived in great fear of spiritual powers and they used magic and magical practices as a way to protect themselves from them and to try to manipulate them and control them for their benefit. And so a story like this, as it circulated around, this would generate all sorts of awe towards the name of Jesus and impressiveness towards Paul and fear. And so look at what happens then in verse 17. This became known to all who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. It's not a name you play around with. It's not a name that you can just call out like any other magical name. No, this is a name that has real power. And if, and if you don't know Jesus, it's not going to work for you. And so the name of the Lord Jesus now is being magnified as this story about the seven sons of Siva is being passed around. And so in view of that, in view of the power of Jesus' name, in view of, no, we, we don't want to practice magic anymore. Look what happens. Luke tells us one last little snapshot before he kind of gives a, an initial wrap up here in verse 20. He says, also, this is verse 18, many of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. So you have believers coming to faith in Jesus, people coming to faith in Jesus who had practiced magic. They had they had incantations. They had formula books. They had done all this stuff before. Um, and they kept coming, presumably to Paul and his team and to the believers in the church saying, I used to practice this stuff. And they were confessing and disclosing their pra- practices. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books. That would be their magic books, their formulas and all of that. They brought their magic books together and were burning them in the sight of everyone. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And so Luke is saying the power of Paul's ministry was so much that now people are actually coming to faith in Jesus, leaving behind their false spiritual practices, their false magical practices. They're bringing their... They're magic books. We actually have some examples of these kinds of things from the City of Magic, what scholars now call the Ephesian letters, which were words of magical power uh, used, among other things, for warding off evil spirits and for manipulating uh, spirits to do your bidding and all of that. Well, people were bringing their their magic books, and they're burning them. And they're doing it in the sight of everyone. In other words, in a public sort of way, they're burning these books. It's not just that they want to make a complete break with it. They don't even want to sell these. They don't want these things to be in circulation anymore. So they're burning them. And they added up the prices of the books and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, it's really hard to calculate ancient uh, monetary amounts to modern monetary amounts. the numbers don't always add up. The point of this is is that this is a massive amount of money. Perhaps the best way to get a picture of the amount of money we're talking about is not to go straight from monetary amount to monetary amount, but to wage earning power. And one scholar says that 50,000 pieces of silver would amount to the yearly wage of about 137 workers. And so think of that. This is the annual wage of 137 employees, a huge amount of money. And rather than selling these books, they burn these books because they want to take these false spiritual and magical practices out of circulation. Now, after Luke gives us that little snapshot, um, he gives in verse 20 another one of these general summary statements that we've seen all throughout the book of Acts. In fact, this is the last one. This is the end of like part five in the book of Acts. He says, so the word of the Lord was growing and prevailing mightily. And so this is the end of Luke's part five, which extends from 16.6. To here at 1920. And in this section, Luke has really pre- presented a graphic account of the gospel's entrance into brand new regions and how the gospel has taken root and grown in Macedonia and in Greece and now in the province of Asia, not just Ephesus, because all Asia heard the word. The opposition to the gospel has been fierce. Um, Paul has known difficulty, hardship, persecution, pain, fear, and discouragement, and nevertheless, the gospel has spread, and as it says here, it has grown mightily and prevailed. Uh, The word of the gospel has prevailed over Roman abuse. It's prevailed over Roman jail time at Philippi. It's prevailed over Jewish accusations. The gospel has prevailed in the face of the Roman courts and the proconsuls at Corinth. Uh, It has overcome the magic arts in Ephesus. The gospel is growing mightily and prevailing in in the face of all these different difficulties and, and obstacles. And now we have the gospel rooted here in Ephesus and here in the region of Asia because of Paul's faithful service to Jesus at this place and at this time. All right, as we wind down this recording, just wanted to remind you that the Listener's Commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching effort made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. And so if you're one of those who financially supports the Listener's Commentary, thanks a ton. Your generosity is making a difference in the lives of thousands of people all around the world. And if you've been benefited in some way by the Listener's Commentary, Would you prayerfully consider uh, joining the team of financial supporters so that this ministry can continue to grow and increase and make a difference in the lives of people all around the world?